0: Oh,
1: Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite. We are the retro show that talks about anything and everything having to do with the wonderful years of growing up as a baby boomer, even some of the later years as a baby boomer, and we are excited to bring you yet another show today. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And we have a special show with a special guest with us today. Uh, it seems to be, Smitty, like we're celebrating a lot of anniversaries, a lot of keynote years. We've got the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II coming up yes. in a couple of shows from now. Yes, we do. And it just seems like uh, 2015 is a, a key mark or a keynote year for anniversaries. Well, we have an anniversary here where we're at in San Diego where Galaxy Nostalgia Network originates from and that anniversary is actually the 100th anniversary of a very important event that to this day is still a destination for tourists and locals and just a historical monument a historical destination point here in san diego it's balboa park and we've got probably one of the best authorities on san diego and especially the environs of san diego and all the things that have happened over the years in san diego a good friend of mine and yours, smitty mm-hmm. a fellow that we've had the pleasure of working with in our regular jobs over the years and just a good all-around guy and a galaxy good guy that being mike bryant mike is the past president of the Historical Bottle Association Club here in San Diego, as well as the Coin and Metal Detectors Club, and he's got a whole lot of history behind his belt. But, Mike, we are so glad to
0: have you on the show today. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure being here today.
1: Good. Well, it's 2015, and us baby boomers, uh, we weren't born. Our Actually, our parents weren't born in 1915. Our grandparents were around. But tell us a little bit of why 2015 and 1915 are so important, especially in San Diego.
0: Well, this marks the 100th anniversary of the 1915 exposition that was held in Balboa Park. Up until that time, San Diego was a little well-known, sleepy little town, and this exhibition helped put San Diego on the map, brought the military to San Diego, and the military liked what they saw, and they built bases here, and it really made the town take off.
1: The San Diego of 1915, what was it like? What was the city
0: like? How many people lived in San Diego, first off? Well, there's approximately 40,000 people in San Diego in 1915. So it really was a sleepy little town. It was at the end of the railroad from Los Angeles, and uh, the roads were not very uh, well built yet. The system was not in place. So the train was the most popular method to get to San Diego. A lot of people, it was just a stop on the way to Tijuana, Mexico, which is only 20 miles away from downtown San Diego. So it was a really a sleepy little town and uh, not much going on here, but the people that lived here knew the climate was fantastic and that they knew that if they could get people to come to San Diego, that they would come, that they would build, they would stay, and they would spend money, and that's exactly what happened.
1: Well, you think of the West Coast in the first years of the 20th century, and immediately you're going to think, first of all, probably San Francisco, and then secondly, Los Angeles. I would assume, and you can can confirm this, San Diego was probably the little sister, the little cousin. Uh, How did San Diego become the location for one of the best
0: expositions in the early 20th century in the United States. Well, they were going to build the Panama Canal and the San Diego knew that they would be the first stop on in the United States on the on the way north for these ships and the last stop for ships heading south. So they were hoping for that. They wanted to get the word out about San Diego. They wanted these ships to stop. They knew if they stopped, they would they would buy supplies, buy fuel, spend money, and that's what the San Diego wanted. San Diego proper in 1915 was basically,
1: it was a small town, a small city. Now they've got their eyes bright and wide because they see this huge potential for commerce, that with the Panama Canal. So the local, and this is politically incorrect, but we can do that because it's our show, Smitty. That's right. The local fathers, the founding fathers and the local city fathers saw this opportunity And I suppose they then rallied the money and the effort and the energy and the commitment to get this beautiful spot. But there's a little background to Balboa Park I'd like you to talk about, Mike. This is a beautiful area. In L.A., we call it Griffith Park. In other areas, they they have their area that will never – Central Park in New York, area that will never be touched. It will never be under the shovel of subdividers and developers. Balboa Park is as pristine and beautiful and secluded in some cases today as it was 100 years ago. Whose land was Balboa Park and what kept it so contained and serene even 100 years later? It's not really been
0: touched. Correct. But if you saw it 100 years ago, it wouldn't look anything like it looks okay. like to now today. But in 1835, it was part of a land grant from the Spanish. And uh, then it was about 1868... It was decided, the city fathers, they weren't very imaginative back in those days, but they set aside 1,200 acres, and they named it City Park. Like I say, a real imaginative name. (laughs) And for pretty much 40 years, that's the way the park stayed. It was just a chaparral, scrub brush covered. And if you've never been to San Diego before, San Diego has kind of a unique topography. We have uh, mesas and canyons. And mesas are just flat hilltops. And mesa, by the way, in Spanish means table. So and divided by canyons. And so that's what San Diego is, mesas and canyons. And so these mesas by the park just stayed the way they were, to shrub brush and, uh, like I said, chaparral. In the canyons, you was, had wildlife, you had coyotes, rabbits, you know, you name it, opossums, raccoons, everything was down there. So it was a really neat like oasis. And um, right around 1909, the city started thinking about maybe doing something with an exposition. The Panama Canal, to give you a little history on that, they, they've been talking for decades about building a canal through Central America. As it stood, it took about uh, 13,000 miles to go from New York to San Francisco by way of a ship, and that's going around Cape Horn down the bottom of South America. I've been there. I was there recently, and it's a really rough area. And there's They figure there's over 200 uh, shipwrecks in that area. But it would take about two months to go from New York to San Francisco on a ship. So they knew if somebody could build a canal across Central America, it would really mm-hmm. save some time. And and so in 1881, the French decided they were going to build a canal, and they started building the canal. They went until uh, about 10 years. In 1894, they abandoned the project. There was over 22,000 deaths from disease, accidents, and uh, the cost was just staggering. So they, they abandoned it. So it stayed abandoned for about 10 years, so 1904 the United States uh, took up the cause, but there was two minor problems. One was they had to do something about the disease, and there was a young army doctor who's, who worked on it, his name was Walter Reed, and he f- determined that these diseases were being transmitted by mosquitoes, not contacted. So they started a heavy program of fumigating and spraying, and they were able to get the mosquito population down. The other problem was, a lot of people don't know this, but that property, the Isthmus of Panama, actually belonged to colombia and the united states wasn't going to go to all this trouble to build a canal if they couldn't control it and run it so what they did was basically they annexed the the land they actually took it away from colombia created a country called panama well colombia was not happy about it what are they going to do they're not going to be able to fight a big country like the united states but we were worried that they were going to do something so we put a lot of military bases down there and, and just to protect the canal but everybody knew that this was going to be something great. They were calling it the greatest engineering feat of modern times. So the pride, the nationalism in the United States was really, really high. So in about 1909, Congress set aside $5 million to any cities that would host an exposition. In 1909, San Diego started talking about doing it because they knew, like I said, this would be the first stop on the ships heading north. And New Orleans also decided they would do it. And so in 1910, they had a contest to rename the park, and, uh, and the one that the name that won was uh, Balboa, and it was named after a uh, European explorer who was the first to travel from the Atlantic to the Pacific across Central America, and uh, so they named it Balboa after him. Balboa Park, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of the, uh, the exposition. So there
2: was a just really, Mike, as you just pinpointed right now, there was just really a great deal of national pride that this canal that the United States is able to complete this project that the French were unable to complete and we were going to have control of this canal that was going to uh, revolutionize basically uh, overseas uh, commerce. Correct. I also, in studying uh, this topic, and we did cover a little bit of this topic before on our um, recent show that we did from the San Diego County Fair at Del Mar, but I know that uh, San Francisco also uh, wanted to host an exposition and they were not too happy that San Diego was going to host
0: something. Oh, it's it's actually the other way around. Oh, okay. San Diego was not happy that San Francisco was going to host the fair. Ah, okay. And as it turned out, they had a San Francisco at that time had about 400,000 residents right. and San Diego only had 40. Right. So they had the political clout and they San Francisco uh, asked all of their citizens to write their congressmen's and the representatives to make the San Francisco Exposition the official uh, exposition of the United States. And that's exactly what happened. Congress uh, made them the official exposition in 1915, gave them the bulk of the $5 and there was a lot of hard feelings uh, between the two expositions.
2: But even still, though San Diego persevered, the city fathers uh, determined to go through with this and uh, they were going to have this exposition.
0: What they decided to do was work together, promote both shows, and it worked. the Mm -hmm. only stipulation that San Francisco had was that San Diego could not called theirs an international exposition, which was no big deal. They only had one international exhibit anyhow, the Japanese Tea Garden, and that was it. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So they did. They worked together and had a real successful, both of them had a real successful uh, fairs.
2: Was there a land reclamation project to make this work in Balboa Park, being it was mostly shrub and scrub
0: and and really undeveloped land? Yes. Yeah, so in 1911, they had the official groundbreaking. Okay. They had a week full of festivities, parades, and you know carnivals and things, and that was the groundbreaking. And they had it done. By 1914, pretty much that was done, so it was ready in 1915 when the exhibition started, and it actually started in December 1914.
1: Well, you know, if you fast forward 100 years, Mike and Smitty, fast forward 100 years from 1915, and this was a spectacular. This this was a world newsmaker. What happened in San Diego with the expo and the buildings? But go 100 years later, and to this day. Balboa Park is one of the most intriguing, beautiful, inspiring, and, for that matter, adventurous destinations you can go to, not only as a tourist to our area of San Diego, but as a native or as a resident, somebody that lives here. You know, it's worth a trip. Uh, My wife and I go probably twice a year it's almost like you go into a time warp, go back in time, you can tell a little bit about the buildings, the structure of the uh, Italiante, the grand structures of the be- of the beauty of the buildings that still remain and are actually, for the most part, still open to the public. You've got the train museum, you've got the Museum of Natural History, you've got the uh, museum, the aviation, the flight, uh, you've also got what is my favorite and will always be my favorite is the Spreckels Organ Pavilion. Tell us about some of the things that we created in 1915, but to this very day, actually, we're broadcasting here. We're doing this tape on a beautiful, just a gorgeous San Diego Sunday afternoon in, in summer in August. And I would estimate there's going to be a lot of people at Balboa Park today just right. out there enjoying the day, enjoying the San Diego sunshine in the summer. But later on today, uh, there will be the organ concert, and it's free. But tell us about the things that were... They were just magnificent then, but they haven't changed. They're they're evergreens. They're still magnificent. The building, the things inside the
0: building, museums, and especially the Oregon Pavilion. Well, i like to mention it, 1,200 acres. It, Balboa Park is our nation's largest urban park. To give you an example, the New York Central Park is only 850 acres. Beautiful area, but our park here in about San Diego is almost twice the size of Central Park in New York. And they get about 12 million visitors a year. Now, when the ex- exhibition buildings were built in 1915... Uh, They were going to be temporary. They were just uh, chicken wire and plaster, no foundations, just kind of thrown together. They're only supposed to last a year or so. But as it turned out, the fair was so successful that first year that they decided to extend it one more year. So now they had to get two years out of these buildings. So they were um, some permanent buildings there, like the View Tower that's there now, the Orkin Pavilion, which I like to mention that was donated by the Spreckles family, who were uh, made their money in sugar. And they built this really uh, a nice and expensive pipe organ that was gave outdoor concerts, and they donated it to the city with one condition, that the concerts are always free. Now, it has over 5,005 pipes, which makes it the largest outdoor organ in the world. And so they just refinished it. Every Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, they have free concerts. And during the summer and Monday nights at 8, they also have free concerts. And uh, sometimes there's big celebrities will come through and they love to play that organ out there in the outside, and you get a lot of people sitting there watching it. And it's really, it's really something to hear if you've never heard it. So yeah. it's, it's free, and it'll always be free. And they've just refinished it; and they made it look real nice again.
2: Yeah, you know, Mike, it's interesting. You were mentioning the uh, the temporary buildings. I remember as a as a little kid going to field trips to Balboa Park, and remember one time one of the teachers told us knock on this, what looked like an imposing column, right. and it was hollow. <laughs> And uh, they were beautiful buildings, of the architecture, and I know over the years they've been demolished and replaced with exact replicas that that are properly built.
0: Exactly. That's what they had to do because, again, these buildings were not built to last this long. And one of the nice things about the 1915-16 exposition here in San Diego, it was all on public property, whereas in San Francisco it was all on private property. So as soon as the fair was over in San Francisco, they tore everything down. There's only the Palace of Fine Arts That's the only building left in San Francisco from the 1915 Exposition. Here in San Diego, most of the buildings are still standing. A lot of them were torn down because they were temporary and were hazards right after 1915. But then we had the 1935 Expo. They built new buildings to replace some of the older ones, and these were built better, more sturdier, and they're still standing to this day. And It's always a a Spanish uh, style of architecture something that you might see in Spain or southern Spain is what you're going to see in Baboa Park. Yeah, the
2: architecture is very unique. And let's just pause for a moment and remind you that you're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Gilbert Smitty-Smith with my good buddy Mike Bragg, and our guest is Mike Bryant, who is uh, noted... San Diego historian and a collector of uh, bottles and coins and all kinds of neat stuff. We have another show coming up with Mike where we'll talk more about that. But we're talking about Balboa Park here in San Diego, California, and uh, uh, its uh, fascinating history. And, Mike, you just mentioned the, uh, the 1935 exposition. There was a second exposition, obviously, in 1935. Yes. Can you tell us what that was all about?
0: The United States was still in the Great Depression. I imagine most of the world was still in the Great Depression at that time. So our city fathers got together and and thought that maybe an exposition would help get us out of the Depression or at least make, you know, during Depressions, uh, movie theaters would be packed and anything where entertainment would be packed. People still spent money to try to get away, you know, just to get away from the the problems and the sadness and the poverty. So they thought maybe having another exposition here would would help that, and it did. Mm-hmm. It was a very successful. It also was only going to run for one year. It was so successful that they ran it for two years. Wow. So it ran through the end of 1936.
2: And there were some new buildings that were constructed for that that are still in existence today, right? Yeah,
0: most of those buildings are still today. Right. The the Ford Building, which is now the Aerospace Museum, right? and there's many other buildings that were built that are still there to, the, to this day, because they built them better at that time.
1: Well, San Diego does have a rich history of being known as a military town, and even... When my dad was in the Marine Corps, he often talked about his leaves from Camp Pendleton down to Oceanside, and this was in the late 40s. But Mike, uh, talk to us a little bit about how, and we're coming, again, as we said earlier in the show, we're coming up on the 70th anniversary show of the end of World War II. San Diego transformed dramatically. Uh, in the days of World War II, even when the war started in 1941, San Diego, uh, we talked to people before San Diegans who were utterly convinced that the Japanese were going to invade the shores of La Jolla and and take over San Diego and rule everything from here to New Mexico. It did not happen, but San Diego being a military town, of course, one of the high spots geographically in San Diego would be, of course, Balboa Park. Talk to us a little bit how... Balboa Park and the environs were converted during World War II as training facilities, especially the connection with the Navy.
0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, in the 1915 exposition, it kind of put San Diego on the map, and a lot of high-ranking people, vice presidents, ex-presidents, admirals, a lot of people came through. As a matter of fact, two million visitors came through the expo that year, and the Navy saw the potential, the military saw the potential of San Diego. And so when World War One started, they took over Balboa Park, and they used it for hospitals, training areas, barracks, and uh, there was a reflection pool there that's still there today in front of the Botanical Gardens. They used that to train swimming and water activities and you know things like that. And then when World War Two started, the same thing happened again. The military took over. By this time, bases were already established in San Diego, but the military they could not handle the amount of people that were coming in for the war. So they took over at Balboa Park. They actually renamed it uh, Camp Kid. And they took over again, and they used it as a hospital. They used it for training. Again, they used the water areas for training for water survival, for teaching swimming. They marched. I know my father-in-law, he mentioned when he came, he joined the Navy and was sent to San Diego. And that's where he slept in Balboa Park in a sleeping bag. Uh, until he was assigned to a ship, and then he he left San Diego. But they did; they used the fa- they used the facilities there all the way through the end of World War II, and then uh, they decided to build some more bases here, and they eventually moved out, and the park was returned, uh, you know, back to the citizens of San Diego.
1: That's truly some rich history of San Diego. Mm-hmm. I do recall, like I say, my dad talking about the the great days of what is now the Gaslamp Quarter in San Diego. Right. Uh, it wasn't quite as flamboyant and, or elegant back in the 40s or, for that matter, the 50s or 60s in downtown San Diego. But you look up from San Diego. Actually, you can look up from Poway on a very clear day, and you can see Balboa Park. And it's just, it, to me, it's, it's the definition of San Diego. Balboa Park and the Immaculata USD, they sit on high points in the city and even the, the cross at Soledad you 're in San Diego when you see any one or all of these of these landmarks uh, mike while we 're here, we always devote a little bit of our show. To collectors or people who may have something that they feel could be valuable or they're just not sure what it is, and you are the best expert on collecting that I happen to know. Let's talk about the, the memorabilia and the items, of course, souvenirs and little trinkets and things. I know you have a great collection, an outstanding collection. I've got a few things from the 1915. In fact, we've, we've swapped items before, but tell me some of the items that were available and who knows? Some of our listeners are going to open a drawer one day with their grandma or grandpa's stuff, and there's going to be a pin back, a celluloid, or maybe a maybe a serving plate. Uh, what type of items were given? I know there was a number of things given it was such
0: a small city. Yes, yeah, so it was actually the Chicago World Fair in uh, the late 1800s that somebody came up with the idea of making a cheap souvenir, mm-hmm. a cheap item that, that people could buy take back home, show people where they've been, maybe to brag. And so by the time the 1915 exposition came around, they had the souvenirs down pat. The quality was very high in those days. Most stuff was hand-painted, handmade, very good quality, very nice. By the time the 1935 expo came around, things were mass-made. They had catalogs you could order things out of. Anything you could think of, uh, from an ashtray to a pocket knife to a compact, was made into a souvenir. They would put a sticker on it or they'd paint the name on it. And it was a souvenir. We figured there was over a 1,000 different types of souvenirs you could buy between the official and unofficial souvenirs that were available during the expositions. And I just want to mention that um, the Marston House in San Diego, which is a real, it's a hidden gem. I mean, if you took, ask 10 native San Diegans, where's the Marston House? I don't think nine of them could tell you. It's a real hidden gem in the northwest corner of Balboa Park. On Little Seventh Avenue, and it's a mansion that was built by the Marston family, who owned an apartment store chain in San Diego, and it was designed by a renowned architect, Irving Gill. Who was all? Who else to work along with the was, fr- Frank? And White Marston
1: White. was one of the heavy hitters behind the development of the Expo. And, right?
0: Absolutely. Okay. And the house. So you got
1: a house with the deal. That's cool.
0: Right. <laughs> the house is probably the finest Arts and Crafts style home in San Diego, and probably one of the finest in all of Southern California. I'm amazed because I'm a docent there. Because right now they're having an exposition on the uh, souvenirs hmm. from the 1915, 1935. Wow. It's a one-time only. This will never be together again. Wow. It's absolutely a fantastic uh, exhibit, two rooms full of, ex- of souvenirs. There's also two other rooms on the architecture of the, of the fairs. It's really, really interesting. But uh, it's uh, just amazing what the different uh, souvenirs are. I'm a docent there, like I mentioned. And people come from all over the United States, and I always ask them, you know, what brought you here. And they're they are fans of architecture, and they've heard about the Marston House. And I highly recommend if you've never been there to go on a tour. The docents that lead the tour, Robert and Jean, they just give a great amount of information, and it's interesting to see this house, how it was built, and the different things that they came up with at the time. And it's just really, really neat. And it's and it's actually administered administered by a company called. SOHO, Save Our Heritage Organization, it's a wonderful, wonderful group of people that are dedicated to preserving San Diego's past through its architecture and its history, and I, I highly recommend uh, they, they do the they do the Whaley House, which has been dubbed America's Most Haunted House. Mm-hmm. They have several other places. The San Isabel General Store. They've returned it back into a general store and museum. They have some things for there. They refurbished it. It looks the way it did back in the 1800s. It's just a wonderful organization. And I highly recommend, uh, if you visit San Diego, to, to go to a couple of their different museums and just see what they've done and how they've helped preserve San Diego's past. Well, Mike, if anybody is
2: planning a trip to San Diego, maybe a future vacation, what would be a good way for them to get more information? Uh, are there websites? Yes, there's are,
0: websites. I can give you Soho's. It's it's san www.sohosandiego.org, Okay. And you go on there, and they have information about all the different buildings that they, they run and, and what their philosophy is and uh, you can buy tickets to these different museums there and it's just really really a great organization. I can't speak highly enough of them. You know, exactly. Mike,
1: we're running out of time here in the show, and there's so much. There's so so many yeah, volumes, we just scratched assistance <laughs> information. Yeah. yeah, we just we just barely touched. There's books you would, I know that you would recommend. There's other destinations. There's online sources, and you are the man when it comes to San Diego history. And if people are thinking of coming out to our town, to our San Diego, or if you live here and you've lived here for a while, maybe you're born and raised here and still don't know all the cool things. Uh, I know you're the kind of guy that you just really just welcome people to email you or contact you by email. Uh, how do people contact you? Even somebody that has a memento, something, a, a curio or a souvenir from the expo, either the 1915 or the 1935 for that matter. What's the best way for people to get in touch with
0: you, Mike? Well, first of all, I'll give you my email address. It's SD mike San Diego Mike, sdmike at san.rr.com. S-A-N dot R-R dot com, all lowercase. One thing is I tell people, if I don't know what an item is, what it's worth, I know people who do. I'm in, I'm in four or five different clubs here in San Diego, and that's how you learn. You join a club, and you learn. You observe, mm-hmm. you watch, see what things are sold for, and people talk about things. You do research, and that's how you learn how valuable things are and what they are and the history behind them is by belonging to a club.
1: Sure, and the yeah. best thing, too, and, and I've known you over 10 years now, is you just love the history. You love and cherish and want to protect the rich history and, and the ancestry of, of our area, of San Diego. And uh, you're a straight shooter. If somebody has something, you, folks, you listeners, if you have something or a question about San Diego, Mike here will tell you exactly how it is. There's no gray area. Uh, as from collectibles right on through to the best places to go see should you come out here. It's not all about SeaWorld and Legoland, folks. There are some hidden treasures that you really need to come see when you enjoy our town here in San Diego. And we are, Smitty, unfortunately out of time here. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, We do appreciate you joining us and sitting back and listening to uh, Mike Bryant here with us. Uh, To reach us, you can always go to Facebook, which we prefer. That's our most updated way to find out what's going on here at Galaxy. Of course, you just type Galaxy Nostalgia Network or Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite in your Facebook search window, and you'll get right to us. We appreciate the likes. We're adding more and more as we go. That tells us, believe it or not, how much you like us or uh, suggestions as far as ideas for future shows coming up. We've been here with you for five years, and we just have barely chipped the tip of the iceberg. We've got so many more memories and things and anniversaries to talk about here at Galaxy. Our website is Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite. Dot com. Remember, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite. That's S I T E. com. and we do uh, love your emails with your ideas and and input. That is Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite at gmail.com. Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. and I'm Mike Bryant. We'll be talking at you next time. So listen in and hurry back soon. Thank you.
2: This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.